Welcome to the Drum History Podcast. I'm your host, Bart Vanderzee, and today I'm joined by Jason Gianni, who's an author, educator, session drummer, Broadway drummer, and most importantly, he was the drummer on the intro for SpongeBob SquarePants. Jason, welcome, welcome to the podcast. <laughs> thanks, man. It's so good to be here, and thanks for having me. Yeah, we, we've met at PASIC. I think the in 2019, we briefly met, but this year in 2021, we actually got to talk. Um, I think you, me, and Mike Dawson and a few other people were kind of standing around and um, just instant kind of connection there, um, which was great. And I saw your um, you spoke with the drum set committee about um, kind of remote learning, which is very topical in 2021. And you did a great job. So really, really happy to have you here. Thank you, man. I really appreciate it. And that panel was really good this year. It was uh, a really apt uh, subject matter. <laughs> yeah. You know, and uh, man, we could have talked for two hours more on that. Uh, you know, I wish it didn't end so soon, but it was a it was a great panel. Yeah, it flew by. It's the era we live in where you got if you're a teacher, you got to um, you got to pivot and uh, people can't see this right now um, while we're because we're doing a video, but it probably won't get shared. But you have an awesome setup with, uh, you know, you might do some playing today. You've got, you know, beautiful drum set with mics and everything. So you're set up and ready to go for for online lessons, which um, that's very important. Yeah, yeah. I really had to do quite a bit over the pandemic because I was doing some online lessons before and um, uh, I didn't have a problem with it, but I didn't really enjoy it that much. Sure. But one thing the pandemic did was finding out that I could use first what was my EAD from Yamaha mm -hmm. and then eventually flipping it over to my um, uh, interface and then getting a little webcam set up and everything. It just became an enjoyable experience. And it uh, saved a lot of money in my pocket commuting in and out of New York City every single day. Yeah. Uh, so it's actually something going forward from here. I'm going to do uh, quite a bit more, which is great. That's great. And once, you know, once you're set up, just never update anything as far as software goes, because once you're good and you're flowing and everything works, then uh, just don't don't mess with it. <laughs> oh, you don't have to tell me that. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. All right. So today's topic um, is going to be we're talking about music of the 40s and 50s and really the evolution of the backbeat. And and we have some these are always fun. We have some really cool audio examples um, that you have selected. I don't know. You want to kind of set this up a little bit before we jump in and explain the topic. And then we will hop in with our first example and break it down. Absolutely. Uh, well, first of all, let me say uh, a little bit of background on myself in general sure. with this is that uh, for a very, very long period of time, I, um, well, like, like many people, I grew up with certain types of music uh, when I was a kid. And um, when I turned 18 and went to college, I started studying more different you know, genres and that sort of thing. And by the time I was 19, I was really heavily involved in more and more jazz, of course, and fusion and Weckles stuff and that kind of thing. And then I went to the Drummers Collective uh, for a summer. And uh, which, by the way, I've been teaching there now for this is my 16th year. Wow. Um, yeah, it's been wonderful. Uh, and what ended up happening is that my MO as a drummer at that point really changed. It became all about versatility and uh, really getting to the uh, root of a lot of different genres, a lot of different feels, a lot of different styles, a lot of different drummers. And I started to find out that I really liked this style as much as I liked that style that mm. I grew up with. Um, and not only was that a, a sort of a good thing for survival as far as being a professional musician, but that I really enjoyed listening to Miles Smiles as much as I listened to Michelle Camilo, as much as I listened to uh, Hemispheres by Rush or something mm -hmm. like that, you know? Yeah. Uh, so that really became important to me that uh, versatility became like really big subject to how I was going to now 
um, go through my career. It wasn't about 10 years ago that I started to kind of think to myself, well, wait a minute. I've been doing all this versatility and these different types of gigs for years, but I never really dug into the history of why are we doing this rhythm? Why is a Cascara rhythm important to us? Where did it come from? Yeah. One day I was sitting down with a great historian and my good friend Daniel Glass, and we started talking about the idea of just the backbeat and where this happened and, and, and how did that come about? And, and it, all of a sudden it just kind of, this light bulb went off in my head of like, well, why do we sit down on the drums and, and now go do, 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 do. Yes, good question. What's, where, where did that language come from? <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. And one thing that occurred to me is that there was a major cultural change around the 40s into the 50s of if you, if you were, you know, sat down with someone in 19, well, let, let's say if you were a drummer mm -hmm. in 1945, what's the first thing you probably were taught at that point? I would say some rudiments or some, you know, uh, marching type stuff i mean it just doesn't seem like you'd be doing backbeat drumming at that point you know uh, probably nothing like that yeah uh probably all the things you said like a, a rudimental st uh, style or just ding jing -a ding jing -a ding yes. sure and and that was more of a big band thing where the hi-hat was constantly on two and four and the ride symbol was constantly ding ding -a ding didn't get to the point yet with the jazz uh you know more uh, sort of you know bop or or uh, contemporary stuff where things started to move around mm -hmm. you know that kind of thing but then what happens in the late 40s into the early 50s is somehow uh well especially into the 60s drummers now were going as their first listening point where did that change over how did that happen you know yeah um and one thing i'll say as as sort of a little left turn i think it's important to note that from people that understand history there were so many problematic social issues going on in our country back then, but there was so much evidence destroyed from paperwork standpoint, things that were kept in the churches that were destroyed. Um, and of course, we didn't have technology then like we do now, so there was a lot of stuff not recorded. So when you think about the person or the idea or the actual moment that something happened, it's hard to really trace yeah. and say, this is the person that did it, or this is the first time it happened. No, it would almost be the first recorded time it happened. Right. Or, or, you know what I mean, where maybe someone's always done something first, where maybe someone heard it and then it spread, especially in that day and age. But um, yeah, that's a good kind of caveat to all this. Yeah, like like I'm a huge fan of Bernard Purdy, and he's a friend of mine, and and you know, and you know, I use the Purdy shuffle all the time. But is he the first guy that ever put a ghost note into a shuffle? Probably not. That's a good point. Yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah. I, and and I'll always give him credit for that groove, and 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 you know, we'll never take away that name. But you know, it's really hard to really just say, okay, this is the first time. You know. Yeah. So we use this sort of like range of time, and and these examples of you know when we could talk about these type of subjects and one of the things i've noticed about music and when we were talking a little bit before this started was we mentioned okay the drummers that change thing i actually think more it's about the music that changed things and that like the idea of like the feel of the music and that change in culture was actually more from the music or the composers sure. than the drummers themselves yeah and i have some examples to prove from that yeah you know? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's a great, great way to lead into it. Um, so why don't we kick things off here 
Um, I have our first track as Strange Things Happening Every Day by Sister Rosetta Tharp, 1944. Um, and you described it kind of a stylistic history of rock and roll. Um, anything you want to say before we hear this track? Yeah. So um, I only actually discovered Sister Rosetta Tharp about, again, like 10 years ago. Um, and I'm, I'm, I still haven't listened to a lot of her uh, mm-hmm. library. Uh, but I've listened to enough of it where uh, she is a, a so ahead of her time, and they yeah. call her the godmother of rock and roll. Um, and for those who have not heard her, um, she's obviously a gospel, blues, southern, uh, you know, uh, composer, but an amazing guitar player. Yeah. Um, if you've ever seen her, she was like so far ahead of her time with that too. Yeah. Uh, there's a great. Um, video sample of her playing live at like a like a train station of all places on youtube you could see it and she's so kicking ass man it's like amazing how how great she was musically you know it's it's this is where those lines start to cross where you go okay yeah yeah it's it's blues and it's gospel but there's this like lilt to the music and there's this you know attitude to the music that if you just throw like a bop and piano on top and maybe play it a little faster, it's little Richard. Yeah, man. exactly. And it was like five, uh, it was like 10 to maybe 12 years before all that, you know? So you could play it and then we could talk about it a little bit after. Yes. Here we go with the first song, um, Strange Things Happening Every Day. Yeah, man. I mean, it's it's it, it makes your head bob. I, I defy you to listen to that and not just kind of like, it, which I mean, that's it seems more uh, and just the lyrics and the 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 format of the song is very. Uh, I, I don't want to say pop, but I just mean it's designed to make you move and feel something. Yeah, yeah. You know what? One of the things I I pick up on when I hear that is like, um, there's more of a of a of a shuffle feel present than just a walking feel yeah. from the bass yeah da-doom, da-doom, you know what i mean yeah that kind of thing yep. and, and you hear like a brush pattern behind it yep and i always talk to my students when i talk about history i stand in one place and i immediately hop to another place and say we didn't go from here to there in like one shot you know like <laughs> <No>. <laughs> you know yeah that took like 10 15 20 years to get us to like what we do today exactly you know what i mean yeah um and so so there's like little hints of like yeah there's a little bit of like a a tiny bit of a backbeat there a tiny bit of like a of a strength on two and four rather than all four dum 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 like a walking line that yeah and and with most of these recordings especially from 1944 it's a little hard to differentiate every single instrument, especially with the drums. So kind of keep that in mind. But I'm sure it was brushes and, and it, it's you, if you listen closely, you can hear it all. But it, it, it gets clearer and clearer as we go down the list. Um, 
in time. But man, she's a powerhouse. Amazing. Her look. There's just some famous pictures of her. You don't expect her to be holding the guitar and just owning it like that. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, she was like literally the first rock star. Yeah. You know, I mean. Yeah. So one thing I'll talk about before we get to the next um, example is that for what I know, because I've heard this in a couple different uh, uh, situations, is that so in the early 40s, um, the one the probably the biggest venue in the South uh, and the, the radio show was the Grand Ole Opry mm-hmm. and the Ryman Theater down in Na- Nashville. Yep. OK. And um, so much music was coming through there. And this is like one of the first places that you can really go to and see like regular touring acts and, yeah. and that sort of thing. And, you know, in the South, obviously, you're talking about not just jazz at this time, but like the blues and the gospel and, and you know, all these different types of acts coming through there. And for what I know, the drums were banned for a certain amount of time. Did you hear that? Have yeah, you that? Well, there's there's an episode way back, the history of country drumming with Maddie Meyer, which it's it's been a while, but like, uh, yes, it was banned. There was no drums. Then I then I I gotta remember this, but then I think it went to a drummer could be on the side of the stage, off, you know, not in the view. Then I think it was like a snare drum could be on there. Then it was like I forget who uh, who it was first, but. It was this, which it, now we're just like, why? Who cares? Just bring the drums <laughs> on stage. But yes, it was banned at first. Do you know the reason why it was banned? I, I'm sure he said it, and I forget uh, at this point. But what, what, why was it? Well, it was too loud. Uh, simply, wait, yeah. Okay. Sure. Now, do you know the reason why it was w- uh, brought back? Uh, because amplification became. Uh, there you go. Yeah. Yeah. Not only just amplification, which was very important. But the development of the electric guitar and electric instruments. Sure. Um, I, I don't remember the, the very specific day, of course, as we talked about before, but yeah. it was somewhere around like 45, 46 or something yeah. where they really started to like promote this electric, you know, um, uh, guitar was plugged in, amplification, that kind of thing. And um, I don't know specifically if it was a live thing or remember Grand Old Opry was a radio yeah. program and there was a variety of radio uh, variety programs and radio programs at that point. So maybe it was something like over the air where they're just like they, they, they can help drums now to sort of boost the sound. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. So I think there was an element of like, okay, music is getting a little in those days, the definition heavier yeah. at the time. You know what I mean? And And we can sort of bring them back in again. So it's really interesting how, I always feel like the role of the drums, um, uh, and, and this could we could take a left turn here for a second. The drumming and rhythm has sort of pushed music in the direction that we know it for many, many, many years. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know I think I mean? maybe people don't even. It's like subliminal too, where you you don't really think about the importance of the drummer, or maybe you know the average music listener doesn't realize how important that rhythm and that backbeat is, but. It's like you you take away the drums from something, then then how does it feel? It's not the same. It is not the same at all. Even bass players, which maybe, you know, you think to yourself, oh, that you know, what is the bass adding? It's like it adds a lot. You know, you oh, take yeah. anything away and it's not nearly as impactful. Um, but yeah, I think you're right. Drummers really did push things forward. Well, like we could even go further back, and I don't want to make this the whole topic of conversation, but obviously everything with rhythm, with hand drums and languages for so many years, and yeah. uh, you know how that was brought over to the southern part of the United States, where the slavery uh, uh, movement, slaves were talking to each other mm-hmm. from field to field on the drums. Uh, if you go to classical music, uh, Beethoven uh, started with timpani and, and Mozart and Haydn with just one, five, one, 
one, five, one. And then you get to Beethoven's sixth symphony, which is called the Pastoral Symphony. And timpani starts doing thunder mm. and, and re- representing a storm. And by Mahler, they were using like 12 timpani and it was like melodies and all that wow. kind of stuff, you know. So drums had this huge impact on like where music went to. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so it was this sort of symbiotic relationship between what the music was doing in general, the dum 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 and then how the drums fit into that and bringing them back on stage like we were talking about. It's a really interesting topic we could talk about for like hours, you know? Yeah. I mean, and it's, I don't know, there's something that's just like, you can't even put it into words, the importance of, of like, you said it originally, and sometimes I think to myself, like, you know, that's like existential, like a drummer going boop, bop, boop, bop with a band. It's like, what is that? Why is that so important? Why? What? But then again, like I said, you take it away, and it then you realize, oh, that's why it's there. But it's just this perfect meshing of these instruments with this backbeat, and it it it's the most important thing. In the w- without it, it's you're not moving, you're not feeling. So I think that that uh, um, kind of just inherent, it's it's in us that that love of that rhythm and that percussion. Um, so there's no escaping it. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. You know, one thing I always talk about with Afro-Cuban music is like everything meshes together like a puzzle. Mm-hmm. And it was created on the streets of Havana, not in some sort of conservatory. Yeah. And, you know, here I am, you know, promoting, you know, all, all the teaching that I do and going to school. And I'm like, man, half the crap that we've done is like done on the streets and yeah. in, internal and stuff. You know, it's amazing. It's <laughs> really so amazing. Funny. You know? Yeah. Yeah. It's a big, wa- weird circle. Yeah. <laughs> the next song would be The Fat Man by Fats Domino. And um, I put this in, it, it wasn't anything like much different than what we heard with Sister Rosetta Tharp, but it was sort of a good bridge to uh, Rock Around the Clock, which comes after that. But you could play a little bit of The Fat Man by Fats Domino. Yeah. And this is 1949. So we're, mm-hmm. we're half a decade. We're kind of jumping ahead five years. Right. So, um, you know, Let's have a listen. Here we go. Yeah, that man. So the first one kind of had me bumping head, like forward. This one has you kind of doing a side to side swing. You know, I just you can't you can't uh, deny your body what the way you move. I've always found that in studio work, too, where it's like you could do it. You could change a mix a little bit and then it, you, you see people start moving a different way. And that is like natural. That's like follow your body, you know? Yeah. <laughs> totally. Yeah, absolutely. I put that one in because uh, for a couple of reasons. Number one, Fats Domino was a New Orleans musician. And um, I, often f- I often find like he's a little bit forgotten about in regards to the beginnings of rock and roll and the soul thing and the, and the blues thing and how like, if, again, you listen to that piano. All right. So th- now Cicero's out of Tharp was the guitar. Yep. Now it's piano. And to me, again, it's like, that's again, Little Richard, you know, I mean, yep. make it faster Yep. And make him a little more exciting, and it's a little Richard, you know. And 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 Fats was like huge in that respect. Now I don't know if you noticed, but you really don't hear any drums there. But it's that's a song you don't even need any drums. You're already moving. Yeah, it's it's um, I don't know. Some of these early songs, you get that thump off the bass, which would 
obviously probably be an upright bass at that point. And, and you get, there's almost like a hiss to the recording where you're yeah. almost like, is that a hiss or is that a cymbal or is that Snare. a brush? Yeah, right, right. And um, so I don't know. It's it, But like you're saying too, where you get, you're putting these ingredients together to almost, then you're going to get to Little Richard, but it's like, you need these ingredients. Little Richard couldn't have pulled these ideas out of nowhere. He, he had to have the inspiration and uh, yeah. it's just, it's, it's neat how it all works. Absolutely. Absolutely. So the next song, and I love, I love this whole idea here is rock around the clock. Now yeah. everybody knows rock around the clock. Okay. 1952. Actually, um, Bill Haley, I don't. Uh, Bill Haley did the most popular version sure. of "Rock Around the Clock," and I, I was talking to you last night over email where I have a version where it's not even the one that everybody knows. Yeah, and I'm like, I don't even know where this version came from. What is this? You know? <laughs> yeah, man, that's that's so common with a lot of these. Is like we think of these songs as like this is the famous one, but it's like you never know who actually wrote it or who where it actually came from. I mean, you, you can figure it out pretty easily, but it's kind of who who got biggest first, and that's who gets credited with the song usually yeah i mean there's so many writers especially coming from broadway there's so many writers like that did things for like um compose things for shows yep. and compose things for other artists and all that kind of stuff and and you're right it's like they all take a shot at like making the best version yep. of what's what's written you know yep. what i mean now here's the cool thing about rock around the clock and bill haley in general um so sister rosetta tharp was a guitarist you know gospel blues you know player all right yeah uh ray charge who we'll talk about in a minute is also came straight from the gospel world okay fats was more of just sort of a new orleans musician bill haley was a country musician mm. he wasn't a rock musician he wasn't a gospel musician he was a country musician okay and a lot of people go, well, Rock Around the Clock is really probably the first rock and roll song. Okay, you can arguably say that because it's so early. And the way that Bill Haley did it uh, and, and the, the elements in the music, yes. But it, he's not a rock musician. Yeah. You know, so it's interesting how a lot of this stuff sort of all collapsed on society from so many different, you know, parts of the world, parts of the, you know, the people, the the black community, the white community, the different type of musical communities. Sure. We, again, like I was saying before, we didn't just start here and jump over to here and we ended up here. It's a conglomeration of a lot of things. Now, one of the things about the rhythm of this song is that, and, and I'm, I'm sorry, I'm forgetting the term, but there was a term that guitarists used to do at the time where they used to put a dollar bill in their guitar. And when they would do that in between their strings, they would get this thuck, 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 yeah. thuck type of sound. Yeah. And they'd still able to form chords, but it would be like a rhythm with a harmonic motion as well. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. So and then and then and then Bill Haley's uh, bass player was playing upright but slapping. So you have that kind of thuck, 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 yeah. you know, that whole kind of thing. And that was totally creating this open door for the drums to come through and duplicate what was going on. Now, we still didn't quite have that kind of thing, but we have you know, like, sort yeah. of like, a, like a displaced sort of thing that the drums were doing. And, and, and then there is one artist I want to talk about after this that sure. I don't have the list. We'll talk about that in a second. But why don't you play that and you'll hear all those rhythms in there. One, two, three o'clock, four o'clock, rock. Five, six, seven o'clock, eight o'clock, rock. Nine, ten, eleven o'clock, twelve o'clock, rock. We're gonna rock around the clock tonight. 
Man, that bass and the drums are just like, it's the sound, you know, that yeah. slap. That's so cool. Isn't that neat? Yeah. Yeah, like all that, like that, that thing that's going on is like, it, it, it's, it's, again, I said it before, it's like an open door for like, like if I was going to hear that for the first time and I never really heard the idea of like slamming a backbeat down. I, I, I still probably wouldn't want to just go ding, ding, ga, ding, ding. No. Ga, like I'd be like, I got to do something more. Yeah. Yeah, you exactly. Know? Yeah. And there's a uh, a toughness to this song, which maybe you can't not have the social, uh, you know, what's happening at the time, because as I'm playing that back, it's like a video off YouTube and it's a bunch of it's from it's pictures from American Graffiti. And it's like, you know, people out cruising in their hot rods and stuff, which um, might be a little bit like movie ish uh, to have right. Harrison Ford and all this stuff. But like it, it's 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 so culturally important at that time. Um, but you know, it's, it's neat. It just puts you right back in that, you know, what I think of from movies as the fifties. It's, it's it's the song, one of the songs of the decade, you know? So one of the things, this is a really, really important point I got to bring up that we, we probably should have talked about a little earlier, but something that was happening a couple of years before that started to kind of really open the idea of the drums you know, creating a sound. If you go back to the forties and the thirties with the big band thing, obviously the start of the low boy mm-hmm. and then the, the high hat created the idea of the high hat being on two and four. And for lack of a better terms, the first kind of like ostinato sure. that drums would use of this, just you know, that sort of thing. And um, what ended up happening is, as you know, especially the low boy, but the hi hat is such an insignificant sound well, significant at the time, but now like a lost sound, like you don't hear it mm-hmm. because everything's so loud and, yeah. and that sort of thing, right? So what ended up happening in in a big band, especially a big band, as the bands got bigger and louder, is the hi-hats started to get lost. So before we got to the drums actually playing what we know is like the two and four, yeah. guys like Lewis Jordan, saxophonist, Lionel Hampton, a lot of band leaders started using hand claps as replacement for the hi-hat or duplicating the hi-hat sure. and you could see some old videos of the whole big band putting their instruments down and clapping their hands hmm. okay yeah and what that ended up happening is that was sort of like the, the the sort of the language of okay this is where music is going and in the jazz world so now we're not talking about blues or or, or the country or, or, or the or the you know the backbeat world kind of thing in the jazz world that led to rockabilly and that's kind of what you just heard with with Bill Haley is totally. that before it's like real rock and roll, it was almost like this country musician doing a rockabilly type of thing. And so the replacement of the hand claps now started to get into the rhythm section. And then the and then the drums took over. So that's kind of like that that progression for for the most part. The timekeeping uh element where it would maybe be early on where you're on the snare drum with it, and then maybe you the hi-hat would come in and you're keeping time on the hi-hat and then the clapping and stuff. That's you can follow that progression of, and also too, like you said, where 
it needs to be louder. It needs to cut. If you have a tiny little hi-hat, you know, that that is two small symbols put together that isn't even really a hi-hat early on, it doesn't cut. But uh, so, but there's Lionel Hampton is a great example, obviously, as a percussionist. People are realizing the importance of this, of, of that rhythm to make people move, I think. Oh, totally. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, 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 and hence, now at that point, the language is really changing. You know, people are starting to hear this. Drummers are wanting to play this. You know, uh, again, I you just go ten years before, and and ching ching gading was your it was your main, you know, um, language at the time for music. And now all of a sudden, it's changing a little bit. You know, so now the next song I have on my list in in fifty two is Hound Dog, but this is uh, Jerry Lieber and Mike Stoller. Eventually, Elvis obviously made it popular. But uh, why don't you go ahead and play that? Sure. Here we go. You ain't nothing but a hound dog Crockin' on the time You ain't nothing but a hound dog Crockin' on the time Well, you ain't never gonna ever And you ain't no friend of mine When I said you was high class Well, that was just a lie You know I said you was high class Well, that was just a lie Nice. Yeah. It really like, I mean, that's drums, you know what yeah. I mean? That's like, uh, using the instrument and I'm sure other songs had too, but that's using the instrument as a, uh, as a real element of the song, not just a backbeat kind of like, you know, keep things moving like that snare, that fill right there at the end. The fills. Just, yeah. It's, yeah. it's more real and modern. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the, uh, in comparison to the other examples we played, that really, you can hear that two and four there yep. now. It's popped in. Yep. And again, it's like one of those things, well, is that the first song that ever did it? No, probably not. But with the elements we're talking about, it certainly is one of the first. Yeah. With the with the now the, ding, 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 the, the kind of shuffly thing yeah. mixed with the heaviness of the music, mixed with the fills. Yeah, the vocal, you know, now, the vocal the, cuts. The vocals cutting. Yeah, all that kind of stuff. And this, by the way, was three years before Elvis made it popular. Yeah. You know? So, um, you know... And by the way, I'm sure you do the same thing. It's like you start going down the rabbit hole of opening up topics and and you go, okay, I found something. And then the next day you're like, oh, no, but this came before. Yeah. Oh, no, but this, you know, and you're like, crap, man, where, yeah. where's the origin to everything? You know, so so it's really interesting how like as you keep going back, you keep finding more and more things like that. Yeah, you know what exactly. I mean? Yeah. And yeah, the but, different but, versions. I know Big Mama Thornton did a version of it. Um, yeah. Which I guess it almost I'm I gotta without I'm just throwing that out there so people know because there's like who wrote it who was first all this stuff but again in history people think of Elvis it's right which this version that we just heard if I didn't know yeah, it's like and you closest just to Elvis played yeah. that to yeah. me I'd go oh that's Elvis yeah. that's a demo yeah. of Elvis it sounds that kind of gritty vocal um that very similar that style. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, uh, I, I I don't know why it was given to Elvis. I don't know, if, you know, if there was a certain specific reason or whatever. Yeah. But you know, it could have been obviously the, the whole Elvis, the pelvis, the sexiness, the <laughs> the bad boy kind of thing. Yeah. You know, and that was a bad boy type of song. Yeah. And you know, um, obviously, sex started to make its way into music at that time. That's another thing is like you know, pre nineteen forties, fifties. Excuse me. There wasn't a whole lot with sex in music. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, 
there's there's a song in in the in the late thirties called "Let Me Rock and Roll You" by the um, uh, uh, this, uh, something sisters. I'm, I'm I'm totally drawing a blank right now. Uh, but it's like it's supposedly one of the first times that, that like rock and roll was used in the title huh. of a song. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, and um and you know people started to kind of speculate what that meant. You know what I mean? Yeah. And and yeah. even Alan Alan Freed when he got on the radio started going like, "Hey, rock and roll, man!" You know, and and people were like, "Well, what does that really mean?" And then it was like the whole well, is this this connection to like a, a van rocking and rolling and having sex in that van? You know that kind of thing. <laughs> you know, That's and music funny. just got more bad. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah, so, exactly. Because people, I mean. Again, you think of like American Graffiti, which I think everyone knows, but it's obviously a great movie. Um, George Lucas and and other, you know, a lot of stars in it. But it's like that we're now going to be this is our music. It's kind of like people start to get their independence. There's like sexual revolutions and all that stuff. Um, So the music. Yeah, of course. Music. What came first? The the kids wanting to do it or did the music push things forward who, who you can't really tell but um that's absolutely sexuality is for sure a part of it well it was certainly a uh combination of a lot of things landing together and here's a real big thing that i talk about rock and roll i think is a, a, a major immense thing is that i read an article um a couple years ago about the fact that in the beginning of world war ii um there was something like 43,000 TVs throughout Europe mm. or something like created, right? Yeah. And with the whole industrial revolution and all the jobs created throughout this time in World War II, um, by the end of World War II, it was like 1 million. So it wow. kind of went up this big slope, right? And then by the end of World War II, up to like the early 50s, it got up to like somewhere it went from like 1 million to 10 million to like 50 million. Wow. Or 60 million. Uh, and and then worldwide, you know, there was this massive climb. So um, media became a huge thing yeah. with the success of like, um, you know, the teens getting into like the new forms of music. Mm-hmm. And of course, Elvis coming out and shaking, you know, Elvis was like the first person to like, you, just, you see the hips shake on yeah. TV. Yeah. There's a really funny episode of the Honeymooners. I don't know if you watch the Honeymooners. Not as much as um, I should. <laughs> oh my God. Oh my God. It's my, one of my favorite sure. shows. But uh, you've probably seen like Ralph dresses up. It's, it's, it's a famous um, uh, scene from Back to the Future where Ralph is in this weird costume yeah. and he's dressed like a pinball machine. And then um, uh, Alice comes out and she's dressed as a little uh, teeny bopper girl. And Audrey uh, Meadows had gorgeous legs and uh, she had this really high skirt on and he goes, where's the rest of that? And she goes, that's part of my costume. He goes, your knees are showing, you know, <laughs> and in 1954, like no woman looked like, like they yeah. didn't show that on, on TV. Yeah. No, absolutely you know I mean? not. I mean, they'd be like, that's like back when they're measuring the length of your like bathing suit to make sure it's long enough. And, you know, you were mentioning TVs and I thought of Back to the Future, too, where they're like, uh, first off, they were like, oh, it's a rerun. And they're a like, rerun. what's, what's yeah. a rerun? And then they say, oh, we've got two TVs. And he's like, he's joking, honey. No one has two TVs. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's a, it's, a, it's a major thing. Like yeah. everyone had just one. And, and you know, like in the 40s, you know, the families would crowd around their radio during Grand Ole Opry or something sure. like that and listen in, right? And then when the TVs came out, it was like this massive, massive revolution. And then you combine it with the teenagers and the badness of the music and the Elvis sh- uh, shaking his hips, and it was it just changed everything. Yeah, and you can you know? see who you're emulating. 
you can oh for sure you can visually see oh i'm gonna slick my hair back now uh i'm gonna start gyrating my hips uncontrollably uh <laughs> like yeah. all, this. So, all right well let's um, yeah let's move on here the next song on the list was i got a woman by ray charles and uh it actually you know what play it because there's one thing i want to talk about that go ahead and play that one 1954 well i got a woman Way over town, that's good to me. Oh yeah, say I got a woman. Way over town, good to me. Oh yeah, she give me money when I'm in need. Yeah, she's a kind of friend indeed. Boom, papa, boom, papa, boom, papa, boom. Right? Awesome. Yeah, now, now you got that double backbeat kind yeah. of thing. Yeah. Which is like when you think of shuffles, uh, you know, like a, uh, uh, like a, like the Lido shuffle or something like, you know, by, by Carl. Sure. Carl. You know, that ducka, yeah. ducka, you know, that yep. kind of thing. Yep. It's like that, that was probably the root of, of that idea, you know, and when you, when you hear James Brown talk about the idea of like, you know, the, the double backbeat or like things shifting around or funky drummer or mm-hmm. going to da you know, that kind of thing. He listened to Ray Charles. And a lot of times Ray Charles is no, this song is actually known as the beginning of funk. Interesting. Believe it or not. Wow. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. A lot of, a lot of funk players look back to, I got a woman and go, Hey, that's where things started to real change, really change with the versatility of the backbeat now, not yeah. just going goon crack, goon crack, but like a goon gaka, goon gaka, goon gaka, you know, that sort of thing. Really cool history there. Yeah. And, you know, I wonder if if they if the player who I should know the drummer on that, but if, if they realize the importance of what they're doing at the time is a conscious choice or if it's like, you know, sometimes when you sit down at the drums and you play, you can't even really you're not even deciding what to play. It's just coming out of you. You know what I mean? Like it just happens. I I would imagine that cultural historical impact isn't really in your mind when you're recording that song with Ray Charles. It just felt right and happened. And it just so happened to change, you know, music. Well, I'll play you something real quick and I'll tell you a funny story about this. So do you know what this is? You know what that's called? Uh, Yeah. I, I've heard, I know that pattern. Um, yeah, it's called the fat back beat. Okay. Okay. And then if you listen to this. Yeah. You got so that's James called Brown. sweat by James Brown, <laughs> yes, right? Exactly. Okay. So here's the coolest story about this. So, uh, and it sort of answers your question is that apparently, and again, it's like, who did this first? But when you were down in the South uh, and you were playing in the clubs down there, the drums were often set up right near the kitchen. And um, down in the South, one of the things that was the popular thing to do was to, uh, you know, uh, fry the pig hmm. in the oil. Okay. Yeah. So what they would do is they would throw the back of the pig or the, you know, the, the, all the meat of the back of the pig into the oil and it would create this, blah, 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 this popping sound. Right. Yeah. And somebody said to the drummer, create a groove that would reflect what you're hearing in the kitchen. <laughs> that's awesome. Isn't that amazing? Wow. That's so cool. <laughs> I mean, but we've all had that where you hear like 
you know, a drip in the kitchen or something and you go, that that's a rhythm right there. Yeah, that's like, yeah. like you're trying to follow it. <laughs> that's yeah, so, so cool. Yeah. So like, so that, so like that idea of like the displaced groove, yeah. you know, or the, or the changing of the backbeat was the, now the roots of funk and dance, you know, sixties, early sixties dance, yeah. which was funk, you know, or that soul, that kind of thing. You know what I yeah, mean? Yeah. I feel like if you displace the, the, the second, you know, the the four or whatever a little bit it it makes the one hit harder you know what yeah. i mean like once you get back on you kind of i feel like that's the whole thing is to just like tie it all back together like that well remember everything in music remember what drumming or music was in general it, it, even back like thousands of years it accompanied dance yeah sure. that was the whole point of it right so even rhythms like uh you know like you know, like the seven, you know, yeah. the, the Greek sevens and elevens and things sure. like that. That was all like hip movement or, or um, you know, when you break up a rhythm, one, two, one, two, one, two, three, one, two, one, two, one, two, three. The idea of having a bigger grouping was so the man could spin or dip the mm. woman in a dance. Wow. You know what I mean? So like the idea of all that moving around shaped not only music, but shaped the rhythms and the feel of music as well. Hmm. You know what I mean? So, yeah. so like based on what you were saying before, you know, I wonder if, if, if like culturally we were thinking of this kind of stuff, I, I you know, I, I don't know if there was a, like, uh, I'm going to school theory type of thought of it, but I think there was definitely some sort of thought to like, you know, what's going on in our culture, what's going on around us. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, what are our surround, the surroundings were a big thing. Yeah. You know, uh, that time they weren't playing Madison Square Garden. <laughs> sure. You know, they were playing the kitchen on Bourbon Street in yeah. New Orleans, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that's a very, very different surrounding than what we have now. And and that definitely uh, was an ingredient to where music was going, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, and that's also one thing, too, where for it to spread like it did, it's someone heard it, then they applied it to what they're doing, then they applied it to what they're doing. It's not on MTV. It has to spread naturally over a relatively, you know, long course of time, a couple years or so. But it, it doesn't I don't know. You're not as inundated as ev with everything as you are today, where it's less impressive. You're, you're kind of we're, we're washed over with everything through media. Um, so it's it's more impactful when you hear it that way. Oh, well, I mean, geez, man, I could sneeze right now and someone in Germany would hear it in, in like a half an hour on YouTube. You know what I mean? Absolutely. So, you know, um, but, you know, then the way to pick up on this stuff was to go see people. You know what I mean? Uh, you'd have to actually go or, or you'd be lucky enough to have a record cut, you know, at the at the point at that point, you know? Yeah, which that's um, not as easy as I mean, you're so right there to get a record cut it's expensive or it's, 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 uh, it's not the same as today where we're, we could record an album right now remotely using zoom for, you know, I mean, it's a very different time. That's for sure. Well, I didn't do enough, but I did a little research on record companies and, um, you know, apparently a Columbia was, was out in like the early to mid thirties or something like that. Like I went oh, wow. back pretty far, Yeah, but, but we're not talking about the massive conglomerates that we know today you know we're talking about literally like starting with like i mean you saw like oh brother where art thou yeah, exactly where, yeah you know where they're cutting it like in the studio or on wax or you know they're singing into a can you yep. know stuff like that yep. you know so it, it, you know to have those recordings at the time were sort of like a treasure you yeah. know 
Yeah. And yeah. it really it really wasn't until like the the fifties that like those record companies became very wealthy and like payola started and you know all 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 that type of stuff started you yeah know? an industry when there's money when there's the opportunity to make a lot of money that's when um you know the kind of cd underbelly can uh rear its head but but yeah i mean it's amazing to think too of like when some of these great recordings happened there was one pressing of it at first yeah. and then that's the master that was played around and uh uh it, it's 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 just impressive that if you cut through at that point you you know it's it's more i don't say it's more impressive but it was harder to get uh the publicity that was necessary um to become a star which a lot of people did such as our our next uh person here there you go yeah <laughs> yeah mr elvis presley uh who we talked about a little bit before with hound dog but now we're gonna have a classic Elvis song. You want to set this one up at all, or you want to hear it yeah. first? Yeah, uh, let's uh, let's play it first because I want to talk about it right after. Okay, so here's Jailhouse Rock, Elvis Presley, 1957. So, in my thought, right off the bat, is there's more hi hat than we've really heard so far. The snare is cracking, and it is uh, it's it's a it's a character in the song. It's an element of the song right off the bat. It is right. It's there. It's and it's a great sounding snare. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Amazing, and um, so. I'm going to have you play it again, but I'm, I'm going to yep. say something and, and then have you play it again. So if you listen to DJ Fontana's part, um, he's actually doing these ghost notes in the beginning in between those hits. So it's hmm. like, boom, boom, da, 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 dun, dun, da, da, da. and he's huh. doing these extra ghost notes, right? And it's clearly swung, all right? And then when the guitar comes in, it's clearly straight. Yeah. So it's like this straight against swung thing. And I always draw this um, little thing on the on the whiteboard when I'm uh, uh, talking about history with my students, where I draw like sort of like steps where between this time and the end of the 50s into the 60s, there was this weird period of time where music is just sort of slowly gravitating from swung to straight. Hmm. It, and, and and this to me is one of the first examples of where the the, the crosshairs start to really fall on top of each other. Yeah. And again, it wasn't going from one day here, one, the next day there, it was this kind of like little weird, um, kind of crazy mistaken. Yeah. Uh, you know, combination. Yeah. Kind of being pulled in both directions and maybe they didn't really realize it at the time, but that's, um, that's awesome. Let me play it again so we can we can hear that a little bit. Yeah, listen to the ghost notes at first, and then when the guitar comes in, how it changes. Walking through a party in the county jail. The prison band was there, they began to wail. The band was jumping and the joint began to swing. You should have heard you knocked out jailbird sing that rock. Everybody let it rock. Yeah, da, 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 da. that's a good point. I mean, I never would have noticed that. That da, da, da. yeah, very, very kind of 
I don't know. You you feel different with that. It's it's kind of polarizing. It it it, it that guitar sort of pulls you back. How would you? I wonder how it would have changed the song if the guitar was swung a little bit more, dun 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 as opposed to right. the straightness. I kind of like the straight feel with with that guitar. I love it, and you know, it's really um, emblematic of like what was going on in New Orleans even earlier in the twenties with what we call the crack playing playing in the crack, where we're not really straight and we're not really sw- strong swung. And it's another thing I draw on the board with my history descriptions. It's like if you draw a straight line. Okay, um, and then you put like uh, you know a bar line at one end, a bar line another, and you put straight on one side and, and swung on the other. If you drew a line down the middle of the straight line, that would be somewhere in the middle. Mm-hmm. Okay, but the crack is not necessarily in the middle. It could kind of waver, like closer to swing or closer to straight. And if you listen to that song all the way through, it kind of like sort of changes it's not really straight it's not really swung it almost sounds like in a way like if i was gonna drink and get real drunk that's the way i would play <laughs> yeah you know it wouldn't be locked in and that's really hard for me because as someone who's a session drummer i feel like i gotta really lock into something and play something straight through which know? is i mean that's the double-edged sword of 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 modern click track pristine session drumming is you probably wouldn't get something like that you know whereas these guys back then were having you know either no click or some you're you're following someone's foot right it's just it's got a feel man i mean that's 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 for sure it's it's a very important piece of it's like it's just it doesn't know what to do (laughs) yeah and it's not something that was uh, explained at the time yeah you know what i mean these guys didn't get into the studio and go well you're gonna play straight and you're gonna play swung and we're gonna be in the middle nobody knew what the hell they were doing that's a good point or or even talk about you know it just sort of evolved that way Um, but that's the reason i think music did evolve to what it did uh through that sort of like let's try things let's experiment let's do something new you know yeah. what i mean yeah and then by the time our next um example came out um well then at this point it was completely straight well not completely straight still it was still like in that crack but like definitely slid over to the straight dial sure. more you know what i mean yeah. but I'll, I'll tell you a reason of, of what was going on with this um so this is keep a knocking by little richard and for anybody that knows uh, about this, uh, this is the famous um, introduction by Charles Connor on drums, who John Bonham took and played for rock and roll by Led Zeppelin. But it started here, yeah. which is Keep a Knockin' by uh, Little Richard. Yeah, here we go. Man, you hear that and you go, oh, that's where that's you got where it's it. From. And it has this like, I just kind of like it's like like a wobbly kind of that that, and you feel the same with Bonham that da 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 da, like that that hi hat is so loose. I feel like loose. You're just not used to that either. You're used to a nice tight chick on the hi hat. It's like pretty extreme, pretty heavy. So, um, I, if anybody wants a good read, you should check out Charles Connor's book called Keep a Knocking, um, because he talks about um. Uh, his early days with Little Richard and 
how they all came about and how they were like touring monsters before this song came out and and for um uh tutti fruity came out and yep. that sort of thing um but there's an amazing story to this song and how it came about and it totally is indicative of the sound you'll hear so um little richard was writing this song and uh i think it was like at night or something like real like really late at night he he gets he calls charles, charles connor he like goes to a store and he's like get in my car and and the, and charles is like what are you doing is like, just get in my car so they go for a ride and he's racing next to a train and he's like he's like open the door or he's like open the window open the window so he opened the window he's like listen and the train's going clack 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 it is that's what i want oh, wow. that's what i want for the beginning of this song so if you listen to the beginning of that song it's like the way a train would be like slamming down the tracks at like 75 miles an hour. Totally. You know, that yeah. kind of thing. That is so cool just to kind of know that. I mean, it's because once you hear that, you're you're not going to unhear that. <laughs> you know, right. now you're going to hear the train. Right. That's so right. neat, man. Now, of course, those who don't know it, that is the beginning of um, Johnny Be Good. So it's the, it's the, the harmonic rhythm of Johnny Be Good mixed with the idea of trying to like get this sort of like you know ferocious train sound yeah and um but again we're still not in that point because this is 57 or 58 or something yeah, like sure. that yeah, if it's a, we're still not at that point of like the 60s and 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 how music really straightened out but it's it's in that steps thing i was telling mm -hmm. you about it's sort of like getting to the top of the stairs. Yeah, it is. And, you know, it's it's just the way the world has always worked out. But it's so neat, I think, how the decades really do define usually, like, nice and cleanly, um, a difference in music where you think, oh, that's 90s rock or that's 80s new wave music or that's um, 70s kind of like, you know, disco or whatever. It is pretty amazing how... Things change. Like once we get up to 60, I mean, it's like, boom, we're now in a another world of rock and roll. It's just neat how that kind of works out. You know what I mean? Like it, it, it typically does. Uh, the decade marker does constitute a change where each decade is almost working up to the next change uh, to this day. Obviously, um, it, it works out nicely like that. So I always talk about that. And it's a, an amazing point. And I wonder, I always wonder if that is the way the music evolution just worked mm -hmm. or very specifically business decisions by record companies. Okay. Because uh. if you start looking at the sixties, now you have, you know, the beach boys, which now is straighten out music and, and it, it obviously changes into the surf thing, you know? And then of course uh, the sixties um, are a little convoluted just because the middle of the sixties is really where the um, British invasion came about. But um, you know, starting in like, like, the 70s you got the progressive rock thing in the early 70s then the late 70s you have like the disco and the punk thing then the early 80s you have the new wave then the late 80s you have like the the metal and the glam metal and then the early 90s you have grunge yeah you know so i think i i really think that like you know there was like sort of a 10-year business plan sure you know totally from from, from the labels and and they sort of would bookend those 10 years with something in the beginning and something in the end. And then they had to sort of reestablish it in the next 10 years. Yeah. Because if you think about like right on the, on right on the eighties and right on the nineties, right on two thousands, there was always like new things happening there. And it was like, what, 
what's going to catch on the most? Yeah. You know yeah, what I mean? To be the counterpoint, to be the, the, the opposite of, I mean, you think of the glam metal and then you think of like Nirvana. It's like totally opposite, totally opposite. And it makes sense. I mean, you don't want to think that like, oh, we're being controlled that much. This is like kind of tinfoil hat conspiracy stuff, but it's like, you don't want to think we're being controlled that much, but really it's like, you, you, they know, I mean, it's human nature to get sick of big hair and, you know, makeup on, you know, you know, glam rock guys. So boom, here's, here's, here's flannel and boots and, um, and, and kind of a downer music. It's almost like if this is popular, let's do the opposite. I mean, so how would you describe it then with, we got this kind of happy go lucky, uh, little Richard kind of like music into the sixties. What was there? What would be our next counter? Because this all, this kind of music, it continued on, but what, what do you think in the sixties was the big, you know, in 1960, what would have hit that would have changed, um, from, from this type of sound? There was a very interesting time during the the late fifties, and that is um, obviously the first thing that happened was the day the music died, the big plane crash with um, uh, Richie Valens and Buddy yeah. Holly and little and, and Big Bopper, um, and that was a major thing because like a very big part of rock and roll literally died. Sure, uh, the progression of rock and roll. Um, uh, uh, Elvis went to the army, so for two years he started literally like cutting his music like not doing anything Mm. in music for like two years okay and if you read the charles connor's book again little richard um one of his uh plane rides an engine went out and he thought that they were going to crash so he ended up finding god and the bible and he went in this religious direction where he stopped playing music as well for a while so there was this real weird chunk of the progression of rock and roll during that time that totally like sort of dropped out. So in the sixties, um, I don't know exactly why, but there was this sort of open door to let's do something totally new. Sure. And the beach boys came in and they were like the big thing at that time. Yeah. And, um, you know, their music was more obviously about like, same, same kind of thing. It was like the teen thing, but it was a different way. It was more like, not just sort of like the sex part of it, but sort of the party yeah. and 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 the beach and 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 the the waves surfing, the surfing yep. yeah, and that kind of thing, and that whole like you know, you know that kind of thing, yeah. and that was also important too because it was a big big movement in instrumental rock at the time with like you know that kind of thing um and that sort of was representative of like what the ocean was doing and the waves sure. and that kind of thing the california so, craze california you know? craze and another thing that that really opened the door for the british invasion was like up to that point you think about okay who was the lead singer of elvis presley well it was elvis presley who was the lead singer of little richard little richard who was the superstar in buddy holly buddy holly who is the lead singer of the Beach Boys? Uh-oh. That's a good point. Yeah. Now you have Mike Love and you have Al Jardine and you have uh, Brian Wilson uh, and Brian Wilson. Yeah. yeah, and you have like massive vocal harmonies. Yeah, and that was something that changed really big at the time. So now music has straightened out. Vocal harmonies are in. Um, they're starting to waver a little bit from the blues progression. Of course, with pet sounds in the six in the sixties, there's no blues anymore. Sure, you know what I mean. So it's like a big change at that time. But I don't 
outside of like what happened at the end with the rock and roll thing, I'm not really sure if there was one specific reason, like a record company's like, I want to do something different. You know what I mean? It's hard to say. Yeah, but that's those are great answers, though, because that's there is usually I mean, even like you said, the day the music died. I mean, there's there's uh, there's just certain things that happen that that it's all very uh, I don't I don't know if serendipitous is the right word. It is kind of all it just is. It's meant to be. It, it happens. And I hope that it's not all just the record companies controlling us behind the <laughs> but like culturally things change. Sure. Um, it, it's just it's awesome. And I, I just I mean, I think we're we're pretty close to the end here. But I think it's neat. To just look at that progression from the beginning to, you know, we were in the early 40s to 57 there and recording quality got better, gear changed, um, the the amount of focus on drumming and, and instruments changed, uh, the style of singing changed. I feel like people got more confidence. It's, uh, you know, racially, I think um, things changed, you oh, know, yeah. sometimes for better or worse, but I think... Yep. There was more stars of different, you know, not just white guys um, or, and girls. So it's it's a really, really neat time that, that we've been able to look at. Now, as we're, you know, wrapping up here, Jason, why don't you kind of tell people what you got going on, what you're working on, where they can see you if they're in the New York area, um, New Jersey area, too. So, what, well, yeah, tell us about you a little bit and what you got going on. Sure. Well, first of all, as everybody knows, the pandemic is still going on and yeah. we're still dealing with, uh, you know, restrictions and who's touring and who's not. And before the pandemic, I was extremely busy on the road, but things have obviously changed and I'm doing some fly dates again, but it's, you know, it's very sort of piecemeal at this point. Sure. So um, I do a lot of fly dates with the uh, Rock of Ages Broadway band, uh, along with John Weber, who's the principal player. So we're kind of uh, different places here and there. Um, I play pretty regularly with a, a violinist named Mark Wood, who is the original violinist of the Trans-Siberian Orchestra, cool. who I played with for two years. And I'm on the road with him quite a bit. But again, not as busy as it was before. Um, and I sub on uh, a couple of different Broadway shows, Rock of Ages, uh, Little Shop of Horrors. Um, matter of fact, I just played a, a four or five show weekend with them, and I'm I'm uh, exhausted today. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. I'm, I'm seeing little yellow dots in my music all over the place. <laughs> um, and um, and uh, I teach at the the collective in New York City in New School. And uh, yeah, uh, I'm trying to think of uh, other things. And right now, I'm I'm just spacing. No, sure. I mean, if people want to take a lesson with you online, is that possible? Where can they Absolutely, find you? Absolutely. Yeah. Please contact me at my email, Jason at drummersbible.com that's my book may have many of you may have seen it the drummer's yeah. bible um but yes i am doing more and more online lessons these days uh so please contact me at my email and we'll uh, get some online stuff going for sure yeah and i'll put that in the um uh, description as well jason at drummersbible.com and uh jason has been kind enough to after we finish this he's going to hang out and we're going to record a little bonus episode which um just even for people listening, I usually try and do the bonus episodes. The last couple episodes in the, this, I think the month of December here in November, there's been some hour and a half, two hour long episodes. So at those points, sometimes I don't do the bonuses because I'm at the end. It's like, all right, we got to go. But today we are going to have a bonus episode and um, we're going to talk about Jason's experience recording drums for the iconic SpongeBob SquarePants intro. Uh, That's right. <laughs> which is, I'm excited to hear this story. So if you want to sign up and hear this bonus episode and some others, uh, go to drumhistorypodcast.com. There's a little Patreon uh, link. I think it says become a patron on there. And uh, for as little as two bucks a month, you can get that. So 
Jason, well, thank you so much. I'm I'm really glad I we we actually formally met and talked and and set this up because you are just a truly passionate guy and and all about the drums, like like all of us. Um, so thank you so much for taking the time to uh, to be here today. It was such a pleasure, man. I I love these podcasts, and I've seen your your work before, and you're so good at what you do. And thank you so much for not only having me, but keeping the spirit of this this alive. Because you know, with the technology, you know, drummers are starting to lose work. I've always been <laughs> yeah. losing work for the last twenty or thirty years. Yeah, and it's it's people like you and podcasts like this that keep it going. So thank you, man. My pleasure. Thank you for the kind words. And uh, thanks again for everyone uh, for listening. And um, Jason and I are going to hop over and do the bonus. So thank you, Jason. Awesome. See you guys soon. If you like this podcast, find me on social media at Drum History and please share, rate, and leave a review. And let me know topics that you would like to learn about in the future. Until next time, keep on learning.